morning, Mountain Park. Happy Valentine's Day. And uh, just for, for those of you who may be here and who are single or watching online or single, I know that, that Valentine's Day can sometimes just be a reminder of something you don't have. And uh, that can be frustrating. And I, I just want you to know, I want you to know that this season of your life, this time of your life, God has a purpose for it. You know, that there's, you, you, you don't need someone else to make you feel valuable. God loves you more than any other person ever could or ever will. And he has a purpose for his time in your life. So, well, hey, before we jump into uh, the message, I wanted to give you a quick update. Last week, Alan announced that he was transitioning to a new role here at Mountain Park, the role of teaching pastor, where he gets to continue to come and teach us on Sundays, just like he always had and lead in the, in the area of discipleship. Um, and, uh, and we had an informational meeting about this on Thursday night. Some of you were there. Thank you for coming. And I know some of you tried to join us online. And hello to those who are watching online now. And we had uh, some, some technical problems. You may not have been able to access the feed. And so we sent out on Friday a recording of that meeting, of most of that meeting. We missed some of the beginning. But we got most of that meeting on a video and, and sent that out. If you did not receive that recording and you would like to, you'd like to be able to watch that, please just let us know. We're happy to send you a link to that. And if you have questions about the changes or whatnot, please feel free to email. You can email Alan at afuller at mountainpark.org or you can email our board of servant leaders at mpcbosl at gmail.com. They'll be happy to answer your questions. Alan is off this weekend. He is taking Valentine's Day to invest in his marriage and setting an example for those of us uh, knuckleheads who did not plan ahead for Valentine's Day. But I love you, my wife. I love you very much. You're watching online. I love you. I'm glad to be your husband. Um, so uh, he'll be back uh, next week and, and carry us on through the rest of the series. But it's my privilege to lead us here in week three of What's in a Name. This is the name of our series, What's in a Name. And, and the idea of, of, this, of this series is we're looking at the names of Jesus, that there was this, a couple thousand years ago, a baby who was born in something like this. And his mom and his dad gave him the name Jesus, just like our moms and dad gave us a name. Although his name was actually determined by the Lord, God actually gave them a supernatural encounter and told his parents what to name him. And, and so that baby Jesus grew up and became a man Jesus. And that man Jesus lived a remarkable, world-changing, human history-altering life. And that life was recorded in what we call the New Testament. And in the New Testament, when you read it, you see that Jesus was actually given lots of other names throughout the New Testament, throughout his life. And sometimes those names were given to him by other people, and sometimes they were actually names he gave himself. And a lot of those names, a lot of the names that we see, they are connected to more than just the story of Jesus. Because the story of Jesus is just one part of a much larger story. And these names, they have meaning beyond just the story of Jesus in the New Testament. They have a meaning that goes into that great, bigger, huge story that starts all the way back at the creation of the world, which is recorded in a book called Genesis, which is a collection of, part of a collection of books called the Old Testament. And so these names had tremendous meaning for Jesus himself, for his disciples, and for the people he was talking to because they were personally connected to the story of the Old Testament in a way that you and I just are not. 
that meaning that, that you and I just don't pick up on. So in order for us to understand, we need to understand where those names come from. And when we do, we see something really cool. We see a tremendous amount of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see that the story of Jesus, it's not a standalone story. It's, it's part of a much bigger story. And, and, and Jesus at the time and his disciples would have known by the names he was using that his story in the New Testament was intrinsically part of this much larger story. And so the more we know that larger story, the more we know the Jesus story even better. And so we've been looking at these words, these names in the New Testament that have origins in the Old Testament. And Alan started uh, a couple weeks ago with, does anyone remember what the first name we looked at was? Lamb of God. Everybody go, bah. There you go, awesome. Talking about the Lamb of God, right? And which is a name that was given to him by John the Baptist. And, but it's connected all the way back to the story of Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people. And, and, and Alan talked about sacrifice and the idea that with sacrifice, the blame for all of our wrongdoing it can actually be passed on to someone else. And then last week he talked about Savior, which is a name the angel gives Jesus in Luke, but is connected to the story, the central story of the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus, of Israel being slaves in Egypt, that Abraham, his family grew and grew, and then they went to Egypt to get food, but they ended up slaves, and then God delivers them from slavery, and, and Alan talked about how God gets the credit for saving them, and that Jesus as our Savior gets the credit for saving us. So today we're gonna look at a name of Jesus in the book of John. If you have your journals, you can open them to page 51. It's week seven in the journals. It's week three of this series. We're gonna be in the book of John. That's John chapter six, if you have your Bibles and wanna get those out. But first, I wanna pray. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you this morning. And Lord, whatever distractions there are, whatever things might, else might be on our mind, we come and we say this morning, right now, in this moment, here's our ears and here's our hearts. Would you remove every distraction so that we can taste you and hear you and take you in and be transformed by you? In Psalm 25, it says, teach me your ways, O Lord. Guide me in your truth, for you are God our Savior. So we look to you and say, teach us, guide us. You are our God and Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in John 6, verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be Thirsty. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus and you're familiar with the Bible, you love this passage. You know what it's like to, to feast on Jesus and, and never be hungry or thirsty. But if you aren't familiar with Jesus, if you haven't been following him for very long, or if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is a weird statement. Because nobody goes around referring to themselves as a fluffy loaf of gluttony goodness. Right? My wife and I, we call ourselves glutinous maximus. Okay, I know some of you are gluten-free, but we're glutinous maximus. We love, but nobody talks like that. Nobody goes around saying, hey, I'm the ciabatta of eternity, 
right? Or the, the kumquat of happiness, or I'm the mango of manliness, right? Nobody says those things. We don't talk like that. And maybe you think, well, yeah, it's just a metaphor. I get, I get what Jesus, he's making a metaphor. He's saying he's like bread. Bread gives me, feeds me, and so Jesus can be good for me too. But I think it's more than just a metaphor. And here's something to remember, that this is a name that Jesus gives himself. So Jesus here says, I am the bread of life. This isn't a name someone else gives him. He says, I am defining myself by this. And so we owe it to Jesus to understand what he means when he gives himself that name and not just what we think it means. And that name is actually referenced, is connected to an Old Testament story. You see that actually up earlier in the passage in John that, that what sparks this statement is, is some questions by some people. And in, in verse 30 and 31, you see it. it says, so they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so Jesus responds and then eventually ends up saying, I am the bread of life. So to understand that Jesus saying, the end, I am the bread of life, we have to go back to that story in the Old Testament, which is a story that happens just about two and a half months after the story of the Exodus, after the Israelites come out of Egypt, walk through the Red Sea on dry land. This is what we're going to look at today. It comes about two and a half months after that. But if you, if you look at the beginning of that story, the beginning of the story of Exodus, you see that God appears to a guy named Moses and he lays out his plan for what he's going to do, his plan for the Israelites. And you see it in Exodus 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. And maybe that's just what you need to hear today, that he indeed sees you. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now there are two promises here. The first one, God says, I will take you out of a bad place. I'm going to take you out of a place of slavery, out of a bad place. That's promise number one. But there's a second part of that promise. Is I'm going to bring you into a better place, a good place. And that's really important because we don't want to go from a bad place to a worse place, right? I mean, haven't we experienced that? Have you ever experienced that? You're, you're in a job and you think, ah, oh, you know, this job isn't great. I'm going to go someplace else. You get another job and it's worse than the first one. Or our relationship right? We don't want to go from bad to worse. So that, that second part of that promise is hugely important. And, and so the Israelites, they come through the Red Sea. They come out onto dry land. And now they're looking forward to that second part of the promise. They've seen God deliver on the first promise, totally deliver. Now they're standing there saying, great, now we're ready to go to that better place. want to go to that land flowing with milk and honey. Now to you and me, a land flowing with milk and honey just sounds really sticky. But to them, that was a picture of abundance, a picture of life. And so when they heard that, what they pictured in their head was something like this. Isn't that beautiful? Picture, man, trees and just beautiful, lush, life-giving Right, lots of life there. Or, the, or they pictured maybe something like this. 
Who wants to have their lunch there with me? <laughs> yeah, you're right there. I agree with you. I mean, what a beautiful place. They pictured these places in their head. This is life. This is milk and honey right here. And, and they didn't have to just make up these pictures in their head. By the way, these pictures are actually taken from the place where Israel would one day settle. The first picture was from the Jordan River Valley where, where they would settle later on. And this is actually Benias Falls where I think it's the tribe of Dan would have settled eventually as part of Israel later. So this, this is what they had in mind. This was actually where they ended up settling. But let's see where they are right now. Picking up in 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. So what this means is two and a half months after they come out of Egypt, they aren't in a place like that, the place with the waterfall. They aren't in that place. They are in a place that's more like this. Which uh, this picture again is taken from the actual desert that, they, that was in the area that they would have been in. So you can imagine their surprise. Two and a half months after being delivered, they're looking at this. So picking up in verse two, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, you have brought us out into this desert to starve this whole entire assembly to death. Now, we read this and it's really easy for us to think that they're just a bunch of whinies, Right? Like, oh, poor me, I want to go back to Egypt and eat my pots of meat. I mean, God just delivered you out of the Red Sea, right? I mean, we can think that they're wanting, but we have to just connect and realize just how harsh their environment really was. And, and that they, they had no experience living in the desert. They spent the past 400 years in Egypt. They were looking for a place of prosperity and they get out, hear this, they have no survival skills. They just have the harshness of the desert. And actually the Hebrew word for desert literally means barren wasteland, a place that cannot support human life. And so they're coming and they're saying they are in a legitimately difficult spot. They are in a hostile space. And so they are not hyperbolizing. They're coming and they're saying, we can't make it. We can't make it in this place. We don't have the skills. We don't know how to do it. We could legitimately die in this space. We can't make it. Have you ever been there? Ever been a place where your need for God is right smack in your face and you can't deny it? Where you look at the situation you're in, the circumstances, and you say, I, I can't make it. Uh, this relationship, this, this, this job, this whatever else, I just can't make it. I can't do this. Last week, Alan talked about sometimes we find ourselves in our own version of Egypt, but sometimes God brings us out of that Egypt and we're out of that Egypt and we find ourselves in a desert. And we find ourselves saying, God, what are you doing? Why did you bring me here to this place? I thought you promised me something better. You delivered, and now I'm stuck here. I can't make it. Maybe my Egypt wasn't so bad after all. Maybe I want to go back because this is just too hard. 
we see that promise that God will take us from a bad place and, and take us to a better place. Those two promises, and we don't always realize that sometimes there's a place in the middle. That's the place of dependence. See, the Israelites, they discovered there was a place between the place of their deliverance and the place of their prosperity, and it was the place of dependence. The place where they had to learn they must depend on God. A place where God must show up. It's so crucial. The Israelites knew that God had delivered them. They knew that God had rescued them. They knew they didn't do it on their own strength, and they knew it. But they had not learned to depend on that God for their everyday life. They knew they could depend on him to deliver them. They had not yet learned they needed to depend on him to live. They didn't do that before. They had never had to do that before. Because before in Egypt, they depended on, on their Egyptian masters. They depended on their own hard work. They depended on themselves. And now God brings them to a place where they can't do that. They must transfer their dependence. They have to transfer their dependence from themselves, from their past, in, onto the Lord, onto God. So they're saying, God, we can't do this. There's no way. We can't do this. And God said, that's exactly where I want you. That's exactly where I want you. Picking up in verse three, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. I'm going to provide. God says, I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to provide in such a way that they have to learn to follow my instructions. And so he does. It's exactly what he does. Picking up in verse 13. In the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. Now, you don't see dew in the desert very often. So this was a strange sight for them. It was dew. Uh, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it, is, what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So God says, I, 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 I'm, I've got this. And God uses this bread to teach the Israelites some very important things about dependence. Some very important things about dependence on God. And the first thing it teaches them is that he will give them enough. He will give them enough. Picking up in verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer from each person, for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. God said, I'll give you enough. I'll give you what you can't give yourself. I'll give it to you and I'll give you enough. But notice that God's version of enough is measured by how much they need, not by how much they want. Right? That God measures enough by how much they need, not how much they want. And he gives them how much they need for one day. 
for one day. He gives them how much they need just for that day only. Because dependence is daily. And he's teaching them dependence is daily. In verse 19, Moses says to the Israelites, passing on God's instructions, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. <laughs> Mistake. <laughs> um, they kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. God wanted them to learn, you can't live off of leftovers. You need me every single day. You have to trust me every single day. See, when the Israelites went to bed every night, they had no food. So, so just imagine that for a second. I have six kids. So just imagine you, you're getting ready to go to bed and you go to a refrigerator. It's empty. You can't have ice cream. It's empty. You, you, there's nothing there. You go to your pantry. It's empty. There's nothing there for breakfast tomorrow. It is empty, bare as a bone. And you go to bed saying, I, I sure hope there's food in the morning. Some of you don't have to imagine that because you've experienced it. You've actually been in a place where you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. And it was a hard place. And the Israelites, they had to wake up every day relying on frosted flakes to be there. Counting on God to provide. Because if he didn't, they would die. They had to learn. God says, don't keep it until the next day. Oh, that means I should actually listen to him. They had to learn to depend on him, waking up each day depending on God. They didn't just theoretically depend on God. They had to make decisions based on his instructions. Like I just said, saying, okay, I'm learning now. God gave me an instruction. I actually had to follow that instruction. Even if that decision seemed to completely contradict their circumstances, right? As they're standing at the desert saying, we got no food. What makes sense to me is to gather as much as I can and store it up. And God says, no, depend upon me for the next day. That we depend on God and that God was calling them to depend on him even when it contradicted their circumstances. And then they had to actually do something. They didn't just depend on him theoretically. They had to get up and they had to walk out of their tents or yurts or whatever it was. And they had to go and they had to pick up the frosted flakes. They had to take that manna and they had to gather it all together. And then they had to actually eat it. They had to actually put it in their mouths and chew it and take in God's provision into their bodies. And by the way, it actually tasted pretty good. Uh, in, in verse 31, it says, the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. God gave them something that tasted good. So see, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I am those things. I am enough for you. I am enough for you. I am everything you need in this life, not just for biological life, but for your spiritual soul-giving life, and not just in this life, but in eternity. 
And he references that back in John, in verse 48, in that same dialogue, he repeats, I am the bread of life. And he says, your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. If you depend on me, if you rely on me, you will have life with me, not just now, but forever. How many of you are afraid of death? Death kind of stinks. Jesus says, depend on me and you will have life forever. I am enough for you in this life and in the next. You don't need anything else other than me. And he also says, I want a daily relationship with you. I don't want you to depend on Sunday leftovers. Monday is not just about what you heard on Sunday. Monday is about what you heard from God on Monday. In addition to what you heard on Sunday, Jesus says, I want you to depend on me each and every day. I want you to come and say, I need you, Jesus, in my life. I cannot live, have the spiritual life without you. I need to depend on you, not just theoretically, but practically. And this is so crucial because I think Sometimes in church, we use phrases like depend on Jesus, rely on Jesus, take Jesus into your life. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, then those make sense to you. You know what that means. But a lot for a lot of people, and certainly for me, when I was an atheist, that meant nothing. What do you mean rely on Jesus? What do you mean, what, what do you mean take him into your life? What, is, what, is, what does that even mean? Well, here. Here's the thing about bread. In order... To enjoy this bread, I have to actually eat it. I have to actually chew it and take it in, right? Like, uh, we can go to the bakery. We can go to the bakery and say, oh, look, they got English muffins. Yummy. And they got white bread, which has no taste and is meaningless at all. But then they have cinnamon raisin bread, which is really yummy and really great. They, have, they got all this stuff. But if I go to the bakery, I can see all of that. If I never actually eat something, I can smell it. But if I never eat it, I don't get to experience that taste. I can even go into the kitchen of the bakery and I can say, oh, look, there's the flour they use to make it and there's all this stuff. And I can watch the master bakers making the bread. And, and I can even say, hey, would you teach me that and learn from them? I can even help make the bread. But if I don't actually eat it, I don't get anything that it provides. I don't get anything. And so see, this can happen with Jesus. We can come to church and we, we can see everything. We can, we can learn all the ingredients of Jesus and learn what he's all about and learn all about the Bible and we can study it. We can study all about Jesus from afar and look at him. We, we, can, we can watch the other people following Jesus. We can even be a part of making church happen and, and folding the, kneading the dough and putting the yeast and doing all of that and putting it in the oven. We can be a part of that and still not take Jesus into our lives. We can walk out of this room and rely on our own ideas of right and wrong. We can walk out of this room believing that our worth can be found in what we do and how much money we make and who likes us and who doesn't like us and what happens on social media. We can depend on ourselves and miss out on the life that Jesus is offering. I saw a great picture of this 
Recently at our men's breakfast we had, there was a, a testimony that a gentleman shared that just blew my mind. It was a, such a perfect illustration of this. And so I called him up to get a little bit more of the story. And I asked him if I could share his story today. And he said, yes. And so he, uh, at the men's breakfast, he stood up and he was sharing that he began attending Mountain Park in 2007. He came with his wife. They come and they attend and, and they start uh, joining small groups and, and, and they start getting involved in the church and participating in the church and they, they contribute to the, the building fund for our first building and the building fund for this building and things seem to be going great and then in 2018, his wife sits him down and asks him if he's having an affair. And at first he says no and then she says, let me try again. I know you're having an affair. And he had to confess and come clean that he had been having affairs. Do you know for how long? 20 years. Since 2007, when he walked into this church. For 20 years, he was coming to church. For 20 years, he's going to small group. He's, he's contributing to funds. But he's never taking Jesus into his life. And he explained it this way. He said, Jan, I had shoeboxes. I had my church shoebox. I had my marriage shoebox. I had my affairs shoebox. I had all these shoeboxes. He never let Jesus out of the box. He never let Jesus into any of the other boxes in his life. So he never experienced the life that Jesus offered him. And his wife never experienced the marriage that Jesus promised them because he never actually took Jesus into his life. And so now he's sitting on the couch and she says, I'm 95% done with you. And now he's in a desert and now he's got no choice. So now for the first time, he begins to say, oh, Jesus, I, I need you. Not just in church, but I need you in my marriage. I need you in my heart. Because there's a lot of crud in my heart. There's a lot of decisions that I'm making that, I, that I'm stuck in. I need you. And begins opening those boxes and letting Jesus flow into the other boxes. And God begins to work in his heart and transform him and transform his wife, and she has her own part of the story, her own journey, and it's 2021, and they're still married. And their marriage is healing and growing. And God is, is doing a miraculous work in them because they let Jesus into their lives. They ate him, they consumed him. Jesus is the bread of life. Not the, not the instruction booklet of life, which is a great thing, but he is the bread of life. If we want the life that he offers, we can't just study him. We can't just examine him, all the ingredients. We can't just explain how faith works. We have to take him into our lives. What does that mean? It means we follow his instructions, just like the Israelites learned. Just like the Israelites learned, I'm going to not keep this overnight. We have to learn when God, when Jesus says something, that we implement that into our lives. It means that when this world says, you are worthless, you don't matter, you say, I have a God who came to earth and died for me. I have all my worth that I need in him. It means when this world says you can't be satisfied unless you have more money, more success, more sex, more popularity, more likes on social media, you say, I have all my satisfaction in the love my Savior gives to me. 
and I'm gonna worship him and I'm gonna take him in and I'm gonna fill that, that void in my heart with Jesus rather than anything else. And when we get to the desert and we say, goodness gracious, I can't make it on my own. I thought, I thought you were gonna take me to the good place. We know, God, you're teaching me dependence, daily dependence. And I wanna transfer my dependence from everything else, everything else onto you. And if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. It's to live our lives as if what Jesus says is true, to feed on him. And when you do this, it changes everything. It changes everything because Jesus is the bread of life. So wherever you bring him, he brings life. So you, you want a, a marriage that's full of life, of an abundant life? Bring Jesus into it. Love your spouse the way Jesus loves your spouse. Follow his instructions. And if you're single and you want to experience a life of singleness that is full, bring Jesus into that life. And you know what? It's Black History Month. If our country individually would bring Jesus, not theoretically, practically into race relations, I promise you we would see a massive transformation in our because wherever you bring Jesus, he brings life. This whole life is a desert. And there's gonna be pockets of oasises and everything else. Our, our real promised land is when we're in eternity with God face to face. And in the meantime, he's teaching us how to depend on him.